Welcome to This Functional Life, a show for women just like you, who are ready for more health, vitality, passion, purpose. We're going to deconstruct norms, uncover your deepest desires, harness your physical and mental health, and peel back the layers to uncover exactly what you want out of life. I'm your host, Betty Murray, part geek, part magician, and your new medical bestie with a dash of sass. I love taking complex science and making it easy to understand and integrate into daily life. Join the journey to make this chapter the best ever. Let's get thriving. So today's guest on This Functional Life is Dr. Robert Whitfield. And Dr. Robert Whitfield is actually a a plastic surgeon in Austin, Texas, but he originally started his career in the Las Vegas area. And he's actually renowned for his breast surgery expertise. He started his his actual surgical activity, really helping uh, women with breast cancer reconstruction surgery. And he's also one of the foremost experts on breast cancer illness and actually doing a lot of research into what is really happening around breast cancer illness. He's uh, actually in the process of working with and trying to get an IRB approved, which is an institutional review board to allow for research on breast cancer uh, illness and some of the data he has found within his own laboratory studies. And so today we're going to talk very specifically about breast cancer illness, what it is, what symptoms you can look for, what are the things that it's associated with. And we're also going to talk about his unique take on not only breast reconstruction and and those types of surgeries so you can avoid implants, but even post-implant how to reconstruct. And even more importantly, his unique holistic way of prepping and planning for the surgery itself and the upfront work that gets done so you have the best possible outcome. And then obviously for several months after surgery, how to make sure that you recover in the best way possible. And so today we're going to be talking all about breast implant illness, and how to go through surgery in a more holistic way so you can recover more quickly. So thank you for listening for This Functional Life. So welcome back to This Functional Life. So I am very excited about having this conversation with Dr. Whitfield. We're going to be talking about breast implant illness. So Dr. Whitfield, tell me, tell me a little bit how you got into medicine and plastic surgery. What made you kind of dive into this world? So, uh, when I was in college, I actually was, uh, well, I'm older, I'm 53 and AIDS was a crisis in the world during that time frame. And so I was very interested in virology and wanted to attend medical school and study virology and do infectious disease. That was like, you have to understand that that time genetics was super primitive in terms of our understanding that the genome had not been mapped at all. That project was ongoing and it was limited by the ability of computers to make computations. Basically, that's what held it back. And when I got to medical school, I thought for sure I would do a Howard Hughes fellowship at the NIH and go there. And so I worked in an AIDS clinic uh, during school and my summer research project between my first and second year uh, with uh, was with Dr. Lisa Bechtel, who passed away from AIDS. Uh, it's, her name is Hydea Broadbent. She had lived the longest after being born with HIV at that point in the in the world. And she would travel to the NIH to get treatment, 
tubes on treatment protocol uh, through them. And then uh, locally, Dr. Bechtel would take care of her. So that's how I met her, born and raised in Las Vegas and did my uh, medical school between Reno and Las Vegas. And I, that's where I met her. And I traveled separately to the NIH and followed her around on her uh, whole day at the uh, clinic there and visited with the doctors and met the head of infectious disease there. And he said something I will never forget. He said, Rob, it's a really good deal here. We get to do a lot and help a lot of people. And sometimes the surgeons even let us take care of their patients. So for a surgeon, <laughs> not knowing my mentality yet, because I hadn't really done much uh, clinical work, it became obvious after about two days in the clinical space that I shouldn't do anything but go into surgery. So uh Basically, I uh, I changed and and after a few rotations, it was pretty clear that I should go into surgery, and uh, I I thought I would be a heart surgeon. That was really uh, what I wanted to do, and I got into residency. And like many people in residency, it's harder once you get there to say, "Oh yeah, that's exactly what I want to do." And ultimately, I became really interested in microsurgery, and so I did a year in the lab, and my whole uh, project was on microsurgery and ischemia reperfusion injury, which I had done uh, some in medical school as well as some in residency. And basically that led me to plastic surgery. So micro is basically the field uh, that plastic surgeons and ENTs to a, a lesser degree can do. And so I really concentrated on oncologic reconstruction. I did a, a fellowship in microsurgery learned a great deal about oncologic reconstruction from William Zamboni, who passed away from kidney cancers, wonderful mentor. And my mentor, Jack Coleman, at any university was famous in, in plastic surgery and microsurgery. I got a teaching position and I taught plastic surgery and microsurgery and uh, perforator flap fellowship uh, was begun uh, because I was insisted upon doing muscle preservation microsurgery. Uh, many women who get breast cancer get reconstructed Early on with um, in this in the 80s and early 90s was something called a tram flap. And then um, that left the blood supply connected uh, up in the chest and they rotated it like a, bringing a tie up and putting it in the pocket. Of course, that's not great for the abdominal wall of a woman. So you're sacrificing a muscle. So the next steps were doing various iterations of that until they learned that you don't really have to cut the muscle you just have to separate it think of like opening a set of blinds and the muscles are beneath or i'm sorry the blood vessels are beneath the muscle and so basically i did cadaver studies when i was finishing my residency and did these in my fellowship and went to europe and attended courses and when i got into practice i said this is what should be done for women so this is what we're gonna do and we ramped up very quickly and started doing quite a volume. So I've done, I stopped doing those in 2019. So from 05 to 19, I did well over 1,500 of just those. And those are pretty long procedures, but they're a very holistic way to do a breast reconstruction. And then I would use fat transfer to smooth and soften all of those uh, outcomes because the breast surgeon is trying to remove, you know, 96% of the breast tissue. They never can do that the same per side. So the sides are always uneven and breasts in general are 
notoriously different side to side. So our job as plastic surgeons and reconstructive surgeons and aesthetic surgeons is to provide the best cosmetic outcome in that case. So I got very adept at doing fat transfers, which was what we discussed earlier. So when I get asked, why do some people write the fat transfers don't work? I just kind of shrugged my shoulders and said, you know, maybe they just shouldn't be talking about them or doing them if they're not confident in that. It sounds like so much better of a procedure, right? To transfer fat to smooth out the tissue rather than trying to remodel other tissue like muscle tissue. Super hard when muscle's involved. It's not not the type of tissue that accepts it really easily. You can put fat in it. So when someone's had a tummy tuck and that tissue's unavailable, you would you could do a little systems dorsi flap and then augment it with fat later, which I did. I mean, reconstructive surgery like this for cancer is like this is a very different. Um, whether it's extremity cancers from sarcomas or breast cancer or head and neck cancer. The oncologic surgeons are trying to save your life. The reconstructive surgeon is trying to make it so you can maintain and function after that surgery and have a quality of life. So I used to reconstruct jaws so people could eat, reconstruct, you know, uh, an esophagus so people could swallow without aspirating, hopefully. There are limitations, but I mean, that's where surgery gets pushed hard. So I always really enjoyed that environment, uh, the challenge of problem solving in that environment. I was part of a very, it was a wonderful group led by uh, Dr. David King, who's the chairman of orthopedics at Medical College of Wisconsin now, of a multidisciplinary sarcoma team. Just crazy, hard surgeries to take care of, but wonderful group to work with and and help take care of those patients. How did you shortest shift? Because obviously you've been doing plastic surgery for a long time. How did you start shifting into breast implant illness? So I moved to Austin in 2012. And uh, in 2016, I had an interesting occurrence. And I'll put it this way. Do you ever think that someone's breast implants could make them forget where their keys are? I would say most people would probably reply and say no. (laughs) You know, that, that seems odd, but... So in 2016, I had a woman come in for a breast reconstruction consult and her complaints were fatigue and and she had some brain fog. I mean, I've taken care of cancer patients for a long period of time and fatigue is a very common complaint of cancer patients who've underwent therapy, either chemotherapy, radiation therapy, multiple, uh, you know, adjunctive things, um, And then brain fog or cognitive decline or memory loss is not actually um, not uncommon in that group. Uh, Chemotherapy causes a lot of side effects. And so I did her physical examination. I did her history. I did all of her labs, reviewed them all. And um, there were no abnormalities outside of those two little things I mentioned, a little you know, fatigue and the brain fog. And so she said, I want you to take down my reconstruction. I don't want it anymore. And from time to time, that's uh, totally um, happened. And my sister's a breast cancer survivor. So uh, obviously I want everybody taken care of, uh, just like my sister was taken care of. And she was taken care of uh, by friends of mine, Dr. Zamboni. And uh, they treated her great. So I always think back in my mind, I just want her, you know, you try to treat everybody like they're your family um, and take care of them the best you can. So I took her to the operating room 
And I made sure she had no evidence of recurrence, did a, a complete uh, entire capsulectomy with everything intact. I did cultures on the way out, which I always do in that setting. And we've got everything back. She had no evidence of recurrence, which is great. So she didn't have a, a cancer issue, but she did have something really interesting. She had an E. coli infection. So it was that in the tissue around the it's in the pocket. Implant? In yeah, the pocket. In the pocket. Okay. So for the audience, an E. coli infection in a hospital has to be greater than 100,000 colony forming units of E. coli. 100,000. That's a big infection. That's not a little infection. And I was really startled by this. I had missed an infection, which is, I've taken care of cancer patients basically from inception of my career. And I always prided myself on not missing Danes, infections, or cancer. And I definitely, this one I had definitely missed. And I went back through all the notes and I was like, how did I miss this? And I, there's nothing to be found because there were no external signs. And she was kind of in the quote unquote, probably immunosuppressed prodromal phase of an infection and never could mount enough of a response. So she just, her body dealt with it for lack of a better explanation. If I think back on it now, I've seen lots of people that have those symptoms. I don't know how many people had breast implant illness, but knowing what I know now, that's what that was. Um, so symptoms like brain fog and anxiety and depression and, you know, shortness of breath, tightness of chest, gut issues, just muscle fatigue, joint pain, it all, you know, reeks of inflammation or part of the uh, illness that's not really able to happen, but it's trying to happen. And so I treated her with antibiotics, actually, um, which is not my natural path uh, now. But this was very different. This was a cancer patient who's immunosuppressed. And so I treated her. And you know, within a month, she's like a whole new person. So infection's gone. She's now been treated appropriately. I believe she put me on a forum or a message board on Facebook. And then I just had people start coming in to see me to get explants done. Now, these weren't cancer patients. These are cosmetic patients now. And I was like, you know, in the back of my head, I'm like, well, if anybody says they're fatigued or has this other, you know, vague stuff, I'm going to assume that there's something going on. I won't, you know, necessarily know that, but I'm not going to be like, no, there's nothing wrong with you, Betty. I'm sorry. You're crazy. And take this antidepressant, which a lot of patients basically get told that. So I started doing these and because I had done cancer reconstruction my entire career. It wasn't very complicated for me to accommodate the request of an in-block capsulectomy. Could you explain what that is? Just a Yeah. So think of it like this. For the audience, an in-block capsulectomy would be like taking the Easter egg out with the candy inside and not damaging the shell. So it's everything's intact. There's been many papers written. There's lots of discussion. There's lots of narratives about this. A little later, we'll talk about why I do this all the time. But um, I started doing these cases and ramped up and started doing a lot of them, actually. And I had a nurse come from New Orleans. And she had everything, every symptom known to man. And she had horrendous fatigue. And I was like, she's a ICU nurse. She gets exposed to junk all the time, like infections um, uh, or people with infections all the time. So the... In the back of my head, I'm like, oh, got to do this and, and see if I can sort this out. And I, I took her to the operator. I did her case and 
the amount of, of almost goo and slime around a non-ruptured. She had no rupture, but it was nice, just like gross. And I, was, I just went out to her, the waiting area and I told her as well, I'm like, I'm very confident this is infected and she's going to get much better after having this done. Back at that time, I used drains on everyone. I don't now and I, I can explain that later. So I drained her, waited for the labs to come back, similar to my first patient I described. At a week, nothing had grown. And so I was super frustrated. So I didn't miss this. I took it out properly and I drained it. So for the audience, if you drain an infected space, the patient will not get worse if in fact the drainage is appropriate for that space, even though there's still bacteria in the space. So the patient felt better, but was draining over 100 cc's of fluid a day from each side. So it was clearly infected and... I had waited this period of time already. So empirically, you know, each of us has our own set of thoughts about infections, especially when it's associated with the breast of what we would do. So I, I treated her empirically with what I would do for what I had done previously with the breast implant infection. And she slowly had a decrease in her drainage and return to uh, New Orleans and got her drains out and she she did better. But so that led me to change my testing technique. So I went from doing swabs like you would do with Q-tips and then send them to the lab to doing what's called PCR testing. Now, in the event, uh, you know, everybody at this point should know what a PCR test and an antigen test is because of COVID. So a PCR test looks for DNA of the particular bacteria fungus or mycobacteria. So all you need is really a pinky nail portion of the capsule. And if it's there, it's there. And I switched to that technique. And now I have over 600 explants with PCR testing, which is by far the largest in North America. And uh, we've submitted that for uh, IRB approval to be a study. And uh, we hope to get that relatively soon. But it's definitive when you find that um i'm sorry in the in the resulting it's definitive if, if something's there i feel like that's that's resolved now i don't drain people anymore i'll talk about that quickly so the audience understands there's a lot of things written on facebook and google which of course are the authorities of all medical information but in reality no bacteria fungus anything doesn't matter if it's one cell or multicellular can live with a certain ph so if you drop the pH in the pocket, meaning make it more acidic or more basic, everything will be destroyed that's not supposed to be there. And so that's what we do. We just use a lower pH solution. Now, I don't use any antibiotics in the pocket because I've seen too many things that wouldn't respond to antibiotics. So you have to be more um, uh, fundamentally sound with what you're doing. So there's lots of these types of solutions now. So that's what I I do. And I don't drain these folks anymore. And and before we hopped on, I said, I just finished a six hour holistic mommy makeover case, which is one of my favorite things to do. I'm super passionate about providing the result that I used to pay, uh, provide for my breast cancer patients for breast implant illness cases. So I'll take a case where someone needs to have all the capsular material and device removed, and I'll provide body contouring, usually in the changing the hip thigh ratio, the waist, the abdomen, and take that fat that we normally discard and uh, using our method and our technology of fat transfer, provide a very beautiful, soft, normal, natural 
volumized breast again. Not the same size as the implant because you don't try to do a one-to-one exchange. That's not how fat works. Um, but if you take down the the torso and the hip waist ratio, then you're you're changing the need for a larger breast size, which I can't achieve with fat anyway. Yeah, and who you know who wouldn't want to rearrange where their fat is, especially as you get older in life, and it shows up in places that you don't want. So, you know, I think it's um, I think it's frightening that we don't know more about this, and that you know, if you go out and look at the FDA, they're you know sort of sidestepping the idea that breast implant illness really exists, and that it's just this very rare, rare thing, but. You know, if you look at the number of women that experience things like joint pain, digestive problems, fatigue, brain fog, cognitive decline, especially and especially if they've had implants, you know, most women, I would say, probably think that that's just part of what's going on in their body and their hormones getting out of whack and everything else. But, you know, it's now really you've got enough data that hopefully with your IRB, you can show that there's a lot going on here that it's not. You know, because the idea is that, oh, it's just the silicone implants. It's just that one, you know, that it's not really just the implant itself. It's what's happening within the the capsular body, I guess you would say. Well, there's a lot going on. I think we've worked backwards in my practice over six years to figure out and answer and provide solutions to as many of those problems as you just mentioned as possible. So at my place in Austin, we do have an accelerated uh, holistic accelerated recovery program. So we try to on the front end identify, you know, root causes and treat them. So that starts with functional genomic testing. So, you know, what's functional genomics, Rob? I mean, okay, what you, plastic surgeon, what do you know about genomics? So I can't tolerate gluten. It's taken us multiple years to figure that out. And because my daughter got really ill uh, early on in her life. And so that, that became like a real impetus for me after seeing my darling little daughter at, you know, four years old, get sick and throw up and carry on and have abdominal pain. And so we did all these tests. And once again, it's, it goes back to your computer, like how advanced are the computers and how advanced does that allow the testing to become and how advanced does that let the analysis become? And now I think both you and I would agree the testing and analysis provided by the functional genomics uh, company we use is far and away better than anything I've ever had or, or, or seen. And so it sets the stage for what I do with folks because in our testing, we look at the immune pathways of vitamin D, methylation, glutathione metabolism, and the antioxidation pathway. And, and the number of cases that I see with breast implant illness, there's either one or two of those that don't function properly, or one is turned really wildly high. So it makes a lot of sense that that combination with this, you know, the backdrop of a, a food sensitivity problem or dysbiosis of the microbi- microbiome in the gut, uh, coupled with endocrine disruption by cortisol or uh, phthalates or BPA or, or any environmental toxin, where in Texas, mycotoxins rule. So mold is a big problem in Texas and Florida and Hawaii and anything on the coast. So I automatically think that I have to rule that out now. It's become like almost my SOP uh, to look at that. So those are the fundamentally the five things that I do in terms of, in addition to, I would say, my normal surgical history and physical and, and you know, operative plan. Yeah. So I want to step back a little bit. So obviously we have those very, um, 
I would say somewhat common, but very specific, you know, symptoms, the, the joint pain, the gut stuff and all those other things. What diseases, like I know there's association with autoimmune conditions, but give a rundown for my listeners of, you know, what other things are potentially at risk if you have breast implant illness? Yeah. So you mentioned autoimmune. I, I think it's really complicated if someone gets a augmentation and they have a history themselves or a family history of like Sjogren's or rheumatoid, things that are vascular or give them uh, Renaud's. Uh, th- there's lots of things that to me are just like red flag, like, nope, can't do that for you. Um, and it used to be with my breast cancer population. If someone had those things, uh, I certainly had my fingers crossed that I could do an autologous reconstruction because they had no business having a device because their immune system already had an issue. And if you take that quote unquote pre-existing condition like that and add it to immune pathway dysfunction, that's quite the mixture to set up for the next problem. And then things like mold, toxic mold exposure and Lyme, uh, sorry, Lyme disease also give you these pictures of all of this. And that's been a bit confusing. And sometimes it's been used to cloud the issue of, of what this is. And I do see a fair amount of coexisting toxic mold exposure. But I think when you, you understand like how big an implant is, and certainly we haven't really talked about textured versus non-textured, but I can highlight the differences in those. Textured is very gritty. It increases the contact Think of something smooth, um, like a piece of glass, and then something, you know, very porous. And that just creates more contact. And that contact in the right person creates a T cell response. We have lymphocytes, B lymphocytes, and T lymphocytes. And those lymphocytes, they're not happy. And that's what creates this chronic inflammatory response that leads to what's called anaplastic large cell lymphoma, which is T-cell based. So there are quite a few women who have suffered um, and succumbed to that disease. I uh, testified at the May 19, to, uh, May 19, uh, I'm sorry, May 2019 FDA hearings uh, behind a woman who had retained capsule from an explant and had anaplastic large cell lymphoma infiltrating her ribs. And there's really nothing you can do for that person. The thing to do is, 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 and it's probably her case as well as having the sister had breast cancer and take care of a bunch of breast cancer patients. Like all the tumor surgeries and things I've been involved with, like you don't want to be fiddling around with something that could have cancer. You know, it's, it's the thing you don't drop and break the egg in the egg toss that's you don't want to do that so the hot potato in this case the implant with its capsule and trying to do it all intact which is just what i did this morning so that that patient when they wake up or that family member or or those loved ones don't have to worry about her having cancer and i don't actually worry about it because i know i'm doing the operation in a way that really really decreases any risk of that patient on pathology after the fact is going to have cancer. Now, I've taken care of patients from all over the United States, operated on by some of the most famous people in the history of plastic surgery. And in particular, one of them had a very strange capture contracture. So it got really firm. It was painful. 
and she had these texture devices. Uh, the texture devices of BioCell uh, texturing from Allergan are the ones that are most consistently involved with uh, breast implant-associated anaplastic large cell lymphoma, or B-I-A-L-C-L. And obviously, I know this. And so I did her case. I did it just like I do all of them, probably with a little bit more pressure to make sure that that wasn't uh, violated you know, in the process of say, taking out the capsule and the implant together. And I sent it off and it took a long time for the pathology to get done, which is always, you know, worrisome. And they called, you know, me and said, oh, Dr. Whitfield, can we send this to MD Anderson? We don't like how it looks, which is never the call that you want to get because that's clearly a cancer they don't understand. They don't send anything to MD Anderson, but zebras, basically, because most of these guys have all the same stains and can do everything. So I said, well, that's great. So I waited for this to come back. And she's at that time, it was two years ago, I guess. She was one of eight people in the world to have B-cell lymphoma on an implant capsule, which they don't report. They report it as B-cell lymphoma of the breast, which of course you and I know. I didn't take it out of the breast. I took it off and it's inside the implant capsule. So recently on September 8th, the FDA did an update along with uh, one of the plastic surgery societies about what's called a BIAALCL and then BIASCC, which is breast implant associated squamous cell carcinoma. This is brand new. There are 16 cases reported currently to being worked up. So I think that's going to put it at 18 currently. Why they chose to report that is unusual to me. It's a super low number. There must be something very specific that was not in the guidance because they didn't change their guidance for evaluations. But to me, and like to you, that's an epithelial cancer. That's a skin cancer. Why that's inside and causing that reaction is strange to me. That is strange. I want to step back a little bit so people kind of understand this. So you have the device, right? That's the breast implant itself. Now, the capsule around it, is that kind of the scar tissue and the other thing that the body sort of builds around it, right? That's your scar. That's that's your internal scarring. So is it my understanding that some people leave the capsule there and just pull out the device? So traditionally teaching when I was taught, um, after dealing with the implant crisis of the 90s and ruptures all the time, I was taught specifically to leave the posterior capsule up against the ribs for fear of causing a pneumothorax or injuring you because they had put what's called a Dacron patch on the back of it in many cases. And that created a really dense reactive response that caused a lot of bleeding when you try to remove it. But these were all at that point, for the most part, smooth. We're talking about a different era of device. And the placement of these devices, of this texture, especially the biocell texture, was ran as FDA trial. The beginning date, I don't know. The end date was around 2004. So trials usually run for, uh, depends, you know, what they want in terms of periods, but it may have been a year or two or whatever. And then they close it and they follow it. And then that was shelved until uh, the release of another silicone implant again to the general uh, public in 2013 by Cientra. And then I believe in in order for there not to be a monopoly, all trials were reviewed and then the other devices were able to be released again. But so they already had devices in place. And then in 2013, these devices that I'm discussing with BioCell Texturing from Allergan were released into the market, specifically the 410 implant for what we used it for uh, during uh, training was breast reconstruction for the most part. It was, it was shaped 
to give women who had had mastectomies the best contour. It was also uh, a very aggressively textured device to prevent rotation so that there was no malposition or rotation. So conceptually, it checked every box that the reconstructive surgeon would need to provide the best possible results. However, these cases developing out of this were obviously very concerning. As soon as we learned of any of them, you know, I halted use of the device. And because I was doing mostly autologous reconstruction, I didn't have many devices in of which I've removed uh, them and everybody else we surveil. So I think the, the FDA guidance is still the same. So you have to be surveilled. If you develop a seroma, it has to be evaluated. Uh, you typically want to aspirate it or run flow cytometry on it to look for the characteristics of ALCL. And for that matter, now the squamous cell carcinoma, because that's going to be a keratin type stain that they'll check because it's a epithelial uh, cancer. So I think there's, at least in, in my understanding, and obviously my understanding today, after our conversation about breast implant illness is going to be much greater than what it was before. But I, I've always kind of heard in the marketplace that the concern was, oh, it was the silicone, that saline breast implants aren't really concerning. But from what you've said and what you're really, I think, picking up is, is it's, it, the device itself is part of the problem, but it's what's happening in that capsular activity, whether there's infections and other things are going to be equally opportunistic, regardless of the material the breast implant is made out of. Is that a, a correct assessment? So the shell of every device is silicone. Oh, the is it? Shell. Okay. The outer yeah. shell. Okay. The filler varies. That can be saline or silicone. So the actual device that's in contact with the patient's tissues is always silicone. And then, like that, like we said, the the surface smooth or textured. There's more contact. So think of like a piece of notebook paper, eight by eleven. When you cut open a regular implant, and and we'll say cut it in half and lay it out. If it's all laid out perfectly, it's about eight by eleven, probably pretty close. If you cut open that same device, but it's textured, you're almost doubling the surface area. And so that's the thing that's very, very, very different. And so to me, I see a lot of people with a lot of immune response. They might not always have elevated markers. And I check CRP. I check LPPA2. I check um, IL-6 levels but they're not consistent in every single person. So I think the evaluation with functional genomics and looking at disrupted or non-functional or poorly functioning detox pathways for vitamin D and glutathione, methylation and antioxidant pathways, you get a very clear picture. When someone comes in now and speaks to me, I can almost like see their genetic report because the things are so like common that they say in their assessments. And then I like to do a lot of provocative challenges for mycotoxin with glutathione. And I just use liposomal glutathione, as you know, just to get the mycotoxin to be expressed. And people will call me and say, you know, Dr. Whitfield, you know, the, that mouth spray tastes terrible. I was like, well, First of all, the mouth spray actually doesn't have a taste for the most part. That's your body's response to that glutathione. So it's giving you that because you don't you don't have that capacity to manage your glutathione. And so it, it's very interesting to see all these things now kind of come together all the time. And 
when I do consults now and I, I do a lot of video discovery sessions to help people. I don't operate on every single patient I talk to. I don't have that capacity. So probably as we get further along, I'll help guide plans and and people will get, you know, operate on more locally. Right now, uh, more than half of my patients come from out of state. Man, flying. Well, that brings me back because you sort of alluded to this, but I want you to specifically, you know, because there's doctors doing explants, but then there's there's your more holistic approach to planning that process and prepping the patient beforehand. So by the time they go through the surgical and then the, the sort of aftercare, they're kind of going into it with the best possible outcomes there because they're already healthier to start with. So talk about that because it is very specific and very unique to how you work with people. Right. Thank you for letting me come back to this. So this is called HARP and it's my holistic accelerated recovery program. And really it's because of all the work we've done with these folks and um, our breast cancer patients. And, you know, traditionally surgeons try to get everything, you know, set up so they do the safest possible operations. But really, when we're talking about people that have lots of inflammation, you really want to reduce the inflammation prior to surgery in as many ways possible as you can. So I will go over your diet and I'll discuss your hormones and I'll try to get a sense of your digestion and how many bowments you have. And so this was all things that I did and I was taught in training not to the degree with which we do it now. We get very granular. We do an old cat 250 and look at how many sensitivities you have to food. And we try to get you to modify your diet and cut out gluten and cut out dairy, sugar, things that are really going to turn on your inflammation. We try to get you in the parasympathetic state so your cortisol goes down and I can balance out your hormones. If you're low, low testosterone, you know, males go through menopause after, you know, age 30 sometimes. Mine was 47. I went through menopause. So my perimenopausal and postmenopausal patients all need a little bit of testosterone back. You can't recover after big procedures like I just did this morning, a six-hour case, if you don't have enough of your hormones. That's that's how you recover. That that drives recovery. So that coupled with your understanding of your genetics. And then finally, if we got somebody who's gut is entirely messed up and they definitely have a, a microbiome issue we get a stool test so that we can put them on the right diet maybe maybe betty has abdominal pain after eating certain things and that's because she has too many methane producing bacteria in her gut we want her on more condensed starches and fermented foods you know leading up to surgery because i can't have somebody getting sick from what they're eating because you're you're Food is your fuel for recovery. If you can't eat, you can't recover. If you can't get enough protein in your diet, you can't recover. You'll stay swollen longer. Now, one of the hallmarks of my program is I can decrease edema more quickly. And if you're on site with me in Austin, we use uh, lymphatic massage all the time, basically afterwards. We have red light therapy. Um, we have a ozonated sauna. Um, all things at the right time based on what they uh, are doing after surgery. Um, obviously, I can micromanage people or who, who are here longer. So I've had people stay as little as 72 hours after surgery and as much as two to three weeks after surgery, just so they can get feeling better and recover as much as possible before they go back to their their home or their work environment where they really got to be on point and, and doing everything themselves. So the five things are a food test, the uh, blood panel to really evaluate your hormones, including your sex hormones and thyroid, your uh, genomics, 
your um, total toxicity. So like I said, in Texas, we have a ton of trouble with mold and rest of plant illness patients have a ton of trouble with detoxing environmental toxins, um, heavy metals, and mycotoxins. So those all get covered. And then of course, the stool test for just looking at dysbiosis in the in the microbiome. So we try to get all those done up front. And not everybody gets every single test, but it's almost like you should. Yeah, definitely. I consider that like everybody needs to at least do a stool test once in their life, even if they think they don't. I, I mean, you you miss 100% of the questions you don't ask. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> no, you're, you're 100% right. You know, I like the fact that you do all of that in advance because by the time by the time they're really there on the table with you, they're in their best possible state, Right. The lady I operated on today was super nice. And when I examined her yesterday prior to her surgery, so just for everybody, this is, I'm talking to Betty on a Monday and I did the pre-op of this patient from out of state on a Sunday. She was very worried, very anxious as a lot of surgical patients are. And I'm doing a fat transfer. So she wanted to know if she, how her inflammation was. So I've examined, I don't know how many thousands and thousands of patients but to examine somebody who is inflamed is very different, whether it's breast inflammation or your guts or your soft tissues. Tissues that are inflamed are a little tense, almost like feeling like a water balloon. You'll feel tenseness of a water balloon when you examine them. But if you can compress tissue gently, there's not a lot of inflammation in the tissue. And I had worked with her for the past two months, really, on her food sensitivities, um, our gut, modify their diet. And so much of that had diminished. She started having a bowel movement every day, which is my prerequisite for surgery. If you're somebody with chronic constipation, you're not going to be getting operated on by me. So that all gets addressed because you, you, if you have chronic constipation, you can't absorb probably half of what you eat. You got to get all that sorted out and your your ability to detox is your eliminations, whether it's urine or stool. I mean, that's how you detox uh, sweat to a lesser degree if you want to uh, include that. But for sure, we try to get all that sorted out, especially when I'm doing body contouring and you know, I'm going to put people in compression and it's just, it's vile if you don't help them get all of that sorted out. You're not, help, you're, not you're making their life unnecessarily uncomfortable. Yeah, miserable. Yeah, definitely. Because, well, you you have the side effect of being under, you know, being under and it often slows the bowels anyway. So, yeah, definitely. You want to be going before you get started. Always does. Always does. We use a lot of Cape Aloe just as a holistic supplement and then others, of course, as you know. Yes, absolutely. So, you know, I, I want to go back and I certainly hope that your IRB gets approved. So you can actually put some good studies out there. I mean, as a, as a PhD, I went back to school, not because I felt like spending a quarter million dollars and years of my life to go back, because I wanted to actually contribute to the body of literature. And especially when we're looking at these more preventative, you know, functional medicine sort of structures. And I certainly hope that that gets approved so you can actually publish what you know and, and dig a little deeper and hopefully get more funding to do more research. Because I, th I think this is elephant in the room. I think there's a lot of people suffering that don't need to. Yeah, I I feel it. It will. I I will know shortly about it. Um, I think more provocatively down the road, we'll look at functional genomics as it relates to breast implant illness. I have a lot of. I think that has a lot of promise, honestly. You know, uh, most of the listeners, if they've listened to my podcast, I've uh, interviewed Kashif Khan. And I actually, Kashif and I, when I did mine 
he actually recorded a Zoom with me. So I just put it out there for the world. I don't have children, so I don't have to worry about, I just shared their genetic data. But just so people would understand, because um, I actually have glutathione SNPs, I have hormone, you know, metabolism SNPs. And so, you know, knowing those things before you go down some journey is so, so very important. And, you know, people today are lucky that we can get that data before we maybe make decisions that, you know, may impact our health long term. Yeah, people ask me, uh, can I can I prognosticate whether or not they should get implants? So can I tell you who's going to have a problem? And of course, I can't 100%, you know, do that. I, like any good doctor like you, I recognize patterns. And I keep trying to figure out, you know, what should we be doing and recognizing more of these patterns. Now it's become very commonplace for me. If I have genomics, I can make more educated um, claims about it, but it's still, I, I don't have one thing that tells you whether you should or should not, you know, do this. Um, texturing is a big deal. I think that's still, you know, in the world, um, it's been, um, you know, definitely pulled from the majority of the big markets in North America, it's pulled from Canada. We still have some availability of texturing here in the US. Um, and I personally, just so the audience knows, I stopped putting in implants and it was never a big portion of my uh, surgical career. I mostly did it as a service to women who had suffered from either a bad cosmetic. Uh, augmentation or revision. So because I did so much reconstructive surgery and I had to take care of cancer patients, I had developed all these different techniques really to accommodate malposition or capsular contracture or changes because those patients have the worst of all those problems because they get operated on in a far more extreme, far more difficult uh, setting for them to recover and they're getting radiation therapy or chemotherapy. So everything I knew, I transferred to the cosmetic world. And then I would just do what I always wanted to do. I just help people and solve problems. But um, eventually all those problems rear their head and they may be breast implant illness. There'd be another capsule contracture or God forbid a cancer or whatever. So I just said, I'm not going to solve those anymore. Somebody younger can take that responsibility on and do that for me in the communities uh, around the United States. And so I just started doing, you know, more and more uh, purely focused on holistic restorations whenever possible. And so that's what I like to do. I favor that. I think it, it suits, uh, you know, my kind of interest in problem solving. It addresses the, the breast implant illness issues along with my heart program. And it gives, I think, very, very good outcomes. Yeah. Well, and it sounds like I'm making an assumption, but obviously if somebody was unhappy with their breasts and maybe was considering, you know, implants or something like that, it sounds like you have all these other techniques like fat transfer. No, they're not going to probably be as pronounced, let's say, as maybe what you might find in a implant, but that there's all these other options that don't require putting a foreign body into your body at this point. Yeah, I do the holistic mommy makeover essentially for moms who've had kids, um, don't want implants. And I do it for women who haven't had kids and don't want implants. So it's really simpler to do uh, in someone who's had children just because the breast expands and contracts. And for the audience, so there'll be a lot of things written 
about fat transfers and you can refer to my podcast, uh, Holistic Plus Scientific, to learn more about why I do it the way I do. But fat should go in a specific place. So think of a shirt with a pocket at the front. So the pocket represents where fat should go. If the outside of the pocket is the skin and the inside of the pocket is above the breast tissue, that space is where fat goes. That's where fat is in every human. And that's where it belongs. You don't put it in the breast and you certainly don't put it where the breast implant was removed if you were doing that operation. So still to this day, it's confusing to, I think, uh, patients and, and I don't, it shouldn't be confusing to providers, but I've seen some unusual things done. And, and I would encourage people, um, uh, not to disparage another specialty, but an ENT, uh, I know of was doing fat transfers to breasts and shot it into the breasts and created a bunch of cysts. Well, that's a very dangerous but naive thing to have done to a patient. One, of course, you'd never inject fat into a breast. You create radiographic abnormalities. And uh, no one wants to make it harder for the radiologist to review a mammogram or an ultrasound. And I get asked all the time, is fat grafting safe? Is it going to affect my mammograms and ultrasounds? And time after time after time in the, in the 2000s, we had research studies and protocols done and evaluations of mammograms with fat transfers. And microcalcs, which are for cancer, look very different than any kind of problem with fat or fat necrosis or calcification. So, of course, a good radiologist and uh, trained in breast will make that delineation. And I'm not concerned about it. I wouldn't fat graft cancer patients if I was concerned about it, which predominantly that's what I've done in my career. It's very safe. It's very effective. Um, and it helps, you know, change what could be a, a, maybe a very poor or average breast cancer reconstruction into a very nice, you know, visibly acceptable um, breast reconstruction for somebody who's, who's suffered a great deal. So I've just transferred that, you know, process over to my cosmetic uh, population of patients and the breast implant illness patients. And really the things that affect fat transfer outcomes are the size of the uh, liposuction cannula used to remove it and the size of the cannula used to place it back. So it's very simple. If you take it out with you know equal or close to the same size that you put it back with, then you will have very little in terms of variance or pressure variance on the on the fat, so you won't be damaging it. And then we use a, a very uh, nice uh, device, and it's a roller pump that helps roll the fat back in. So traditionally, you're taught to put it back in with a 60 cc syringe and a specifically designed so, uh, a somewhat smaller, longer cannula. As um, the audience should know, anytime you reduce size, you increase resistance and you need more pressure to make the flow happen. So, it was, oh, well, Rob said he's done all these. Well, yeah, I was very good with a syringe because I had to, because that's how we were all taught. And the first transfers I ever did, you know, the device we had was a Williams-Sonoma colander that we sterilized and we rolled the fat out on Telfo, which is a nonstick cause. And then we put it back into a test um uh, syringes ourselves and injected it that's how everybody was taught but now i have this you know a billion dollar device and i harvest it it's collected in a sterile chamber it's kept there when we're ready to put it back 
We have a special roller pump. Um, the, you know, unnecessary fluid's been drained. It's been, uh, you know, uh, taken care of, you know, safely, securely, and sterilely the whole time. So there's really, it's controlled. And according to the FDA, they want minimal manipulation of fat transfer. That means you don't add things back like exosomes and peptides and stem cells. And then you put it back and how you put it back, just as I described, with the even pressure and even distribution, like you're planting seeds in a, a field. You don't put 25 seeds in one hole, you seed at a time. So outcomes are, uh, you know, I hope that's, you know, simple enough for everybody to understand, but outcomes are dictated, you know, by those, you know, fundamentals. Definitely. That's, you know, I just didn't realize, you know, how, I mean, obviously it's technical surgery, but just how much variation there could be that really makes a difference on the overall outcome, you know? And I, and I think, and I think, you know, for all the women out there who are thinking that maybe their breast implants might be making them sick and, um, you know, or not sure, or maybe somebody's on the fence and considering doing breast implants, I think they should definitely look you up. Tell me, tell me and my listeners how they can get a hold of you, how they can find information about you. Sure. So there's a couple different ways. Um, so to learn more, just like we're doing a podcast, I have a podcast called Holistic Plus Scientific. It's on Apple and Spotify and all the other platforms. And then if you want to go on and learn more about breast implant illness and take a quiz, we have a site called breastimplantillnessexpert.com. If you drop in there, there's several videos and a quiz and a way to contact us if you want to learn more. And then I have a main site, drrobertwhitfield.com, that has before and afters of uh, different variations of these procedures so you can review. And I think, you know, I'll just, I'll just say, I think if you really want to know, um, do you have something like this? Is this really a problem for you? I, I know a lot of folks turn to social media and that's uh, a, a bit frustrating for me because that's not a, a quality source. And if you're already concerned um, and, and anxious or upset about the, the situation, social media is not going to make that better for you. I'm happy to, I currently have all complimentary just discovery calls. I'm happy to get on a call with clients wherever they are in the United States and answer their questions. And trust me, I, I've listened to enough stories. I'll, I'll be able to answer your questions pretty easily. Yeah, I, I know. I tell people all the time. I'm like, look, people who are happy, feel great and had fantastic outcomes in their life. Don't go create social media groups. So you hear the worst of the worst. And then there's a lot of speculation. And, you know, sometimes there's intelligent information, but a lot of times you're getting very, very extreme information that probably just makes it worse and makes you more frightened. It is. It's 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 sad. We've created a number of assets to help provide as much evidence. And I don't speak about things I don't have quality evidence about or have an experience personally through my over 20 years of surgery and treating all sorts of clients with breast problems from, you know, uh, breast cancer, uh, breast implant illness, you know, problems with implants and capture contractures, infections. Um, just, uh, you can't imagine how much work's been put into just being able to answer your question. So you, you're not, I am older than the internet. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> right. So I always tell my clients, like, 
the internet to me used to exist on a CD-ROM that I loaded into something called Silver Platter. And that's how I looked up articles. And so that everybody knows, a peer-referenced piece of literature is found on PubMed. It's not done through a Google search, and it's not done through Facebook. And you can Anybody can look up my last name or Dr. Murray's last name and identify what we've written. Yeah. So, yeah, it's uh, you want to make sure it's peer-reviewed data that you're getting your data from, for sure. For sure. Well, Dr. Whitfield, thank you so much for being on. And everybody, please go out and, and take the quiz and find out more information, particularly if this is an area that you're interested in, so you are well-informed. And thank you so much. And I look forward. I'm going to see you in a couple of weeks, as a matter That's of fact. That's right. <laughs> we'll sit down and have a cocktail. Yes, we will. We will. An organic glass of wine, maybe. Right. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time. Thanks. Thank you so much for tuning into this functional life. You are why I'm here and I am so very grateful. You're here for a reason. I celebrate your commitment to claiming your youthful energy and stepping into this next phase of life, feeling vibrant, healthy, and powerful. I am so proud of you. Hit subscribe so you don't miss any wisdom on creating the most exceptional life on our terms. If this episode helped you in any way, please share it with a friend to spread the love and together we rise. You can follow me on social media at Betty Murray PhD. And if you want a chance to share your story with our tribe or find out more about working with my team, you can sign up at chatwithbetty.com slash podcast. Again, that's chatwithbetty.com slash podcast. See you next week. Bye-bye.